might ring familiar. Because yes, surpasses what we read last week. Surpasses that we preached out of last week. And we looked last week at Jesus, and particularly Jesus' interaction with the fig tree. And we saw that uh, Jesus condemned the fig tree because he expected fruit from the tree, and there was no fruit there. And we talked about, hey, how is that applicable for our lives? What does that mean for us? What is the fruit that God would call us to bear? And we said that if we are in Christ, there's a fruit that should be born out of us, the fruit of his spirit that dwells inside of us, should be evident in our lives. And so we spent some time there. But Mark has written this, this sandwich that he uses sometimes, where he starts a story, puts something else in the middle, and then ends the story. And so the, the reality of the fig tree is, is pointing to the temple. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on what does it look like when Jesus comes in and he cleanses this temple. Last week we already began with with this idea that so many times we have this picture of who Jesus is, and then sometimes in Scripture we see Him and we're like, man, that does not fit the mold that I had Jesus in. And so we saw that He would curse a fig tree that looks like maybe it wasn't even supposed to be bearing fruit, but we talked about hey, uh, that, that tree was in leaf, and so it should have been bearing some sort of fruit, whether it was ripe fruit or a different fruit. It should have been bearing fruit. So the judgment was not that it wasn't ripe, that it was the wrong fruit. It was that there was no fruit. And so that we wrestled with that. This idea of Jesus. Well, Jesus is also coming in and he's cleansing the temple. Like he's overturning some tables. He's calling people out in their sinfulness. And for many of us, that's not the kind, gentle, loving Jesus that we really want to be presenting to our friends and to, to people that we think might want to know him. The beauty of it is that we don't, we don't have to do that. We don't have to present Jesus. We don't have to pretty him up. Like we can just say, here is Jesus. I don't understand it all. I don't get it all. But this is what it says is true. And if it's true, then he's amazing. He's beautiful. He's more than, I, than I've already uh, learned about who he is. But he, he is both meek and humble and kind. And he is this one who will come again with judgment and with power to rule. And so as uh, Riley and I were talking this week in preparation, um, Riley reminded me of C.S. Lewis. And so there's a quote in C.S. Lewis, and it's talking about Aslan, the lion, right? And we can get so comfortable, which if you don't know, it's spoiler alert, Aslan is like a representative of God, okay? And, and more more. Particularly Jesus, right? As he lays down his life for all of the, the creatures in Narnia. But this idea of Jesus coming as both the lion and the lamb, and then something that's dangerous. Like he's, he comes and he doesn't fit into our picture. Well, the story goes like this. In the beaver home, Lucy's there and she's asking about Aslan. And she asks if he's safe. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen, in that context, we've seen Jesus come and tell us that the kingdom of God is at hand. He, he's shown us very clearly that he is that king. 
A couple of weeks ago, we saw that the procession that he leads into Jerusalem is a king, a royal-like procession of a king who would come. No, he's not safe. He's not always fitting into our idea of the kind and gentle and meek and mild Jesus. Sometimes he is authoritative. Sometimes he judges. Sometimes he calls us out in our own sin and conviction. And that is still good. That's still what we need. And whether we know it or not, it's what we want also. I pray that in that context we would hear what God is saying to us today. Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you stir in us a desire to know you and to see you for who you are? Not for the the preconceived notions that we have, but we would look at Scripture and we would say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want you to know me. Even those things that I I try to hide from you, I pray that you would know them and that you would call me out of my sin. Lord, would you be with us today? Will we leave changed? Lord, start with me. Change me and transform me. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, three things I want to see as we look at, at the temple. What is true true worship? We can quickly jump to the conclusion that Jesus is judging uh, the Jewish people. He's judging the temple. He's judging Judaism itself. And that's not true. Like, the, the, What is true worship? Because there's always been true worship of God. Since He created Adam and Eve... They worshipped Him in the garden. They were His people and they dwelt with Him. And that's what worship looked like. And then as we see the story progress, after sin comes into the world and there's brokenness in our relationship, God again comes to the people and He presents a new way to approach Him. Rather than in the cool of the evening in the garden, now they can come through, through sacrifice into His presence in first the tabernacle and then the temple. And so that today, that's where we're at. We're at the temple. And so to know and understand the temple, you have to understand what true worship looks like in the temple. It's the dwelling place of God with man. It's this place that was set apart that many would come and travel to. And we've, as we talked Psalms of Ascent, so much of our time together was singing these songs as the people would travel to Jerusalem remembering who their God is. Longing to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, the design of God was always that He would dwell with His people. That He would have a people, that He would dwell with them, and that they would be His. When we get into the passage, we see that um, first and foremost, Jesus passes into uh, Jerusalem and He passes the fig tree. We talked about how He looked for leaves on it. Looked for fruit, expecting there to be fruit because there were, the tree was in leaf. Um, and there, were no, there was no fruit there. And so Jesus curses it. And his disciples heard it. And what we're going to find there is they're going to remember this the next day as they walk out of Jerusalem. In verse 15 it says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus comes into the temple and there's a lot going on. What we may don't what we may not understand is that the temple is huge, like it's massive. There's different courts. There's courts upon courts upon courts, and this whole thing kind of expands out. And in the outside court, which is called the court of the Gentiles, which Gentiles, if you don't know what that means, maybe it's a foreign word to you. Gentiles were those outside of Jewish ethnicity. There's anybody other than Jews. So for us today, I don't know if any of you are ethnic Jews, but I know that I'm not, so that means that I am a Gentile. And so this court of the Gentiles in that time would have been the place where I could come and I could hear about the good news of the kingdom. I couldn't go further than the court of the Gentiles, but in the court of the Gentiles I could hear the good news about the kingdom, about a promised Messiah, about the reality of who God is and what He was doing. That was the design of the court of the Gentiles so that people like maybe you and definitely me would be able to go and hear this good news that was to to a people other than me, promised to a people other than me, and yet God was grafting us in. And so in this court of the Gentiles, the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom should have been happening. But instead, what was happening? Well, read it with me. It says, He drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons... Wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything throughout the temple. Listen, it doesn't sound like the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom is going on there. It sounds like buying and selling and a lot of economics. Right? Well, when Herod built this temple in 80, 30, or in, uh, 30 B.C., so about 30 years ago, before Jesus is there, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this Gentile court That isn't what it was designed to do. And so instead of the place where the proclamation of the good news of Christ to a a people who need a... Okay, not the good news of Christ, but the good news of God and who He is and what He was doing. Instead of that proclamation happening, they were taking advantage of people. Instead of proclaiming good news to the poor and the broken, they were using the poor and the broken to get richer. They were... They had... It had become a commodity where since people had to travel to Jerusalem and didn't want to bring their animals and their sacrifices, they would come and they would bring their money and they would purchase a right sacrifice from the priests. But the, the priests had a whole, the whole thing. Like they, they would exchange the money. So maybe there was a cut being taken there. And then they would sell the, the sacrifice or the offering And so the whole thing was feeding into their idea of what religion was. And actually, instead of proclaiming to a people that needed to hear, it was keeping them separate. You'll see in verse 17, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of time this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Because we want to look at what Jesus says. Not only what he does, because the next po- we see what he does. He's overturning these tables. He's frustrated and angry that the way that God had intended his temple to be used was not being used for that purpose. 
And so he has a righteous indignation that is showing up. And he's stopping, at least for a little while, what the, 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 the religion of that day. He's not letting them travel through. He's flipping tables. He's stopping the exchange of money. And he's doing it and he's recalling to them what is the purpose of God's temple. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. It's a longer reading, so just follow along as I read. It says this, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my, my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. This idea that Israel was God's chosen people and they were set apart to be an example to the nations around them. They weren't set apart just so that they could be holy and different. They were set apart so that they could be holy and different as a proclamation to a world that needed to hear that there is a God who is holy and you can only come to Him through, through a sacrifice, through an offering. Because He's holy, He's not like us. That's what God had established His people for. Not for their own enjoyment, not so that they could lord it over others, but so that they could proclaim it to the people that needed to hear it. Which is them, right? They get to remind each other like we do on Sunday mornings. They get to remind each other of who God is and what He's done but also to the outward nations, to those eunuchs who could not be part of the people of God. For verse 3, the foreigner who has joined himself, like for, all of this was ethnic. All of this was uh, by heritage and lineage. That's how you were the people of God. But God is saying, no, but I'm going out of that too. I'm calling all nations. And so my temple should be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what true worship looked like. That's what God's design was for the temple and for the people that would serve there, for the priests who would serve there, was that they would minister to God's people and that they would proclaim to a people that were not yet God's people the good news of the kingdom. True worship. But instead, what Jesus finds as he enters the temple is a false and hollow religion. He sees that the, the hum, human desires that we all have to gain, to find power, to find prestige, is going on in God's temple. The place where we as people should be most humble 
the priests and the rulers and the leaders were exercising dominion over other people, exploiting them, using them for their own gain, feeding their human desires. In this same passage, verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? We saw that in Isaiah. He continues on, but you have made it a den of robbers. If, uh, <clears throat> if you like reading Old Testament, and some of us do and some of us struggle with it, um, the prophets that would speak God's voice and his news to, a people, to his people often were shunned. Often, if you've heard one message from a prophet, you don't want to hear any more. Because usually those messages were a message of judgment first and foremost. But also a, a message of salvation that would come. And a calling of turning and repenting and coming back to God. And that's what Jeremiah is. Jeremiah is a really long book of constant proclamation of the judgment of God on its people. And so as we read in Jeremiah 7, we, we hear the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Jump to verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Five, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods on your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I have of old to your fathers for, that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did it to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Sometimes we say, God, I want to hear your voice. And then he speaks and we're like, that's not what I wanted to hear. Have you ever been there? Like, he comes and he's, and he's, instead of this maybe hopeful encouragement, he gives you a correction. He calls you to repentance. And that's where the people are coming to Jeremiah. And they, Jeremiah states that he has a word from the Lord. And he's giving them the word from the Lord, but the word of the Lord is a judgment against them. That they had trusted in deceptive words. 
They had said, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This idea that, hey, if we're in this place, nothing bad can happen. And you look thousands of years later and you see that that's still the case in the temple of the Lord. They think that because they're in the temple, they can do whatever they want. And God is calling them to repentance, to execute justice, to not oppress the sojourner. The sojourner is a traveler, one who is moving through. Often it's a pilgrim, someone who is coming to the temple to worship God rightly, and they are being oppressed and taken advantage of. The fatherless or the widow shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, verse 7. Verse 9, I think, speaks particularly to me, maybe to you too. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings of Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, or just call by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? I'm not saying that we're not going to struggle. We can't, we can't take that and be like, oh, well, then that's, that's got to be the case for me because I, I sinned this week. No, we, all, we have all sinned this week. But the reality that I can come and I can check a box, that I can come and stand in the temple, that I can gather as the church, that I can have a quiet time, and that it doesn't change any of the way that I'm living, that has never been true about who God is, and about true worship. He has always said that you will come to me and you will be changed simply by being with me. Verse 11, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Here's Jesus coming into the temple and he's declaring the same thing. That what should have been a house of prayer has become a den of robbers. And the people would remember, because as he's teaching, these are the learned men of of, of God, the the people that are in the temple worshiping, and they're hearing these words from Jesus' mouth. And they also remember that Jeremiah said, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus is speaking the Lord's words. And in that same moment, he's making a connection. As he's made it clearly with his disciples, he's now making it a public connection that he is the Lord. And what we're going to see out of this is that this really spurs on the desire for those who are in power that have this whole system that's already been designed to to line their pockets and to feed their, their prestige These men are now feeling offended and moving beyond offense to to outright indignation and anger. And now they're going to kill Jesus. Back to Mark. 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. There's always this response to Jesus. We've seen it so many times. And either in the miracles that he does or the way that he interacts with people, there's a fear and an astonishment. They don't, 
They don't understand it completely, but they recognize that it's something different. It's something powerful. It's something new. And then Jesus puts the words to it saying, no, I am, I am the suffering servant. I am God's own servant sent to you. I am the son of man. And then Peter declares that you're the son of God. But every time this happens, there's a sense of fear and astonishment amongst the people. So this Jesus is, is calling out false religion, calling us to true worship, and then what does He do? He says, it passed, He passed the fig tree, and that's when the disciples remembered what happened. Peter remembered and said to Him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. True worship has never been about morals. It's never been about doing all of the right things. True worship has always been about having faith in God. In the very beginning, God would call Adam and Eve to trust Him. To, to hear His words and trust His commandments that they were the best for Him. You had to have faith to believe that. God continues throughout the Old Testament, even as He gives the law, He's giving the law so that they would worship Him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That they would have faith. Faith first that then would produce action, that would produce right living, that would produce a different way of going about life so that that different way would be a testimony to a, a world that also needs to have faith. Not live the same way they do, but trust in a God who is good, a God who is powerful, a God who is present, a God who dwells amongst them. True religion, true worship leads to a pure faith. Have faith in God. And he expounds on that. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain... Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus comes and he sees what's going on in the temple and he realizes that that's not the true worship that God has called us to. He reminds the people in the temple that this house was dedicated to be a house of prayer for all nations and yet it's become a den of robbers. And then he takes the disciples and he says, listen, this is what that looks like. Have faith in God. Trust Him. This utter dependence, which is a place where we're uncomfortable. Can we just be honest about that? Like we don't want to depend on anything other than ourselves, and yet God is saying, no, I am the one that you can trust, that you can depend on, so depend on me and me alone. Have faith in me and me alone. And what does that faith look like? That faith looks like prayer. Praying prayers that are, that are like mind-blowing. And he uses an idiom there, that would, be, would have been used at the time, that you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would be moved. And Jesus is saying that, listen, if you have the faith in a God who can move mountains, He will move mountains. Not on your time. Not at your leisure, but 
in His timing, He can do all things. Have faith. As you read this passage, does it remind you of anything? As I'm reading this, this teaching that Jesus does with His disciples, it reminds me quickly of the Sermon on the Mount. In the beginning of that sermon where Jesus teaches them to pray. He talks to them about what belief is. He's calling them to trust Him. He tells them how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, 5-15, through 15, and, and if you have this, you kind of see where Jesus is echoing the same things in Mark. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sometimes we get caught up in like the liturgy or the, the way that we go about things. And it feels very... Um, Structured, it feels kind of rigid sometimes, but the reality is that we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to follow the same path that Jesus has laid out for us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we sing a song at the beginning that makes much of who God is, that He's strong, He's powerful, He's holy, that's what we're doing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. An acknowledgement that, that we would need to have that if I'm praying to Jesus, I'm acknowledging that He's Lord and Savior, that He's King, that He has a kingdom, that He has a will that's being done, that He's sovereign over all things. And so in that place, I would say, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then He teaches us how to depend on Him, how to trust Him. Give us this day our daily bread. Nothing more, nothing less. Give me what I need today, God, and that will be sufficient. If you give me what I need, and what I most need is you. I will be happy. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you see in Mark, he says at the end, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. This idea that we've been forgiven much and so we can forgive. That's beautiful. That's what, that's what the nations that were surrounding Israel needed to see of the people of God. And that's what the people around us need to see of the people of God today. They need to see that we have been forgiven and that we would forgive. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we would not fall into the temptation of wanting to line our own pockets. That we would not fall into the temptation of taking advantage of the power or the position that I have, using it and lording it over others, but that we would come as the King has come and laid down His life and served those around Him. The needy, the poor, the broken, the blind, us. That we wouldn't fall into that temptation, but God would deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is what true worship looks like. This is what faithful dependence looks like. It looks like walking in this, this kind of prayer continuously. We never move from this place. This isn't like praying 101 and eventually you're going to get the 201 or 301 or if you really stick with it, you'll get to that 401 or maybe there's a master's class or something like that. No, this is the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray and there was no advanced course beyond it. It's this daily, constant dependence on who God is. Have faith in God. One of the things that we see here is this temple pointed to the reality. So much of the Old Testament is types and ways and images that would point to the, the truest form, which is Jesus himself. You see in the New Testament where Jesus is described as the great high priest. He was better than any other high priest who had come. And then what we see also is in, in Peter, in his letter to the church, he writes about the temple and that Jesus is the cornerstone, that this temple is built upon. He is the true temple. And what we know in the fullness of God's uh, laid out plan through Scripture is we know that both Jesus is both the Holy of Holies, which is that inner court in the temple, that place where God's beauty and fullness and holiness and otherness dwells. But he's also the court of the Gentiles. He's also the one who has come to bring in a people who are not a people. And so this is the good news of the gospel. The temple, the high priest, the law, it all pointed to God. And Jesus is God. Instead of us going to God's habitation in the temple, Jesus came and inhabited and dwelt with us. He became human. Why? So that he could walk perfect righteousness. You see, through one man's sin, Adam's sin, we were separated from God. We were broken from God. And yet through one man's perfect obedience, we have been united with God. Through Jesus' obedience. And so all of this points to the cross. Where Jesus has both fulfilled the law and he's taken the punishment of those who haven't fulfilled that law. And this requires a belief more radical than moving mountains. Like that idea of say to the mountain it'll be moved. But no, what, what's really going to be hard is for me to believe that what Jesus has done is true for me. It's going to be hard for me to believe as hard as it is, as it would be for me to believe that God could move a mountain, it's going to be that hard and that difficult for me to believe that His righteousness is in me and I can walk in that today. And yet it's true. First Peter 2, 4-8 say this, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. 
You see that Jesus is the better temple. He's the better high priest. He's the better mediator. He's the better everything. Jesus has come and he has all of these things that were given to us before pointed to the perfect fulfillment that we have in Christ. And so today, the call then is to have faith in God. A call to faith and repentance. It's the same call that Jeremiah made to the people of God in his speaking God's voice to them. Return to God. For us today, it's a repentance that that would say, hey, the, the striving that you've been doing, the way that you've been trying to come to God through your works, through your own ability, through your own gifting, stop. Have faith in God. Trust in the one who has come and done it perfectly for you. Jesus himself. It's a call to faith and repentance. One more thing. As we think about fruit, and we remember the fig tree that wasn't bearing any fruit, one of the fruit that God calls us to is the fruit of repentance. And often we look at our life and we see that there's, there's not a lot of righteousness or there's not a lot of, I don't know, whatever it is. I know that for me I judge myself and I look for righteousness. But some of the greatest fruit that we can bear is the fruit of repentance. Repentance. A people that recognize, I do not have it together and I've hurt you, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I want to repent and turn from that because I have this great Savior. And so I pray that God would stir in us and create whatever fruit He's growing. But I pray that we would also see the fruit of repentance as this beautiful fruit. Like this gift to us that that would say that we are growing in the grace of Christ. That we, the fruit of the Spirit is rising up in us as we repent, as we become that people. So today I call you to faith. I call us to faith and repentance. Tim Keller looks at the story and he, he wraps it up. The idea that we have both the meek and mild Jesus, but we also have the Jesus that comes in and he flips tables and he, and he curses a tree that's not bearing fruit. And how do we reconcile that? He says there's a final irony in all of this. Jesus who unites such apparent extremes of character into such an integrated and balanced whole demands an extreme response from every one of us. He forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of his kingdom to everyone then warns the most devout insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness is forever closing down our options. This man who can be weakened by a touch in a crowd on his way to bring a little girl back from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes from. And we haven't even yet witnessed the true depths of his restraint or the heights of his power. He is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flaming sword, and you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. As we look at Jesus, as we continue to look at Jesus, I pray that we would say, you are Lord. You are the one who is crowned. You are the one who has the right to dictate my life to me rather than me dictate how you should work, how you should do. And I pray that as we walk in that place, as we grow in faith and trust, that we would be people that are full of joy like unspeakable joy, that we would have rest 
That we would produce right, that the Spirit would produce righteousness in us. Not for our sake so that we could say, look at us, we're this righteous people. But so that people could say, man, there's something about them. And we'd be able to say, we have a great God. We have a God who dwells with us. We have a God who sent His Son to die on the cross to make a way for us to be right with Him. And it's, it's available to you too. So I pray that today we would walk in faith and repentance. Lord, we thank You. God, we thank You for um, even a, a lesson, a lesson in the temple, a reminder that You have always been a God who has dwelt with His people. And you have gone to great lengths to do that, even to the length of killing your own son. Him being rejected so that we would be accepted. God, you are so kind and so good. And so, Lord, today I pray that in light of your goodness and your kindness that we would turn from, from evil. That we would not give in to temptation. That we would walk by faith and not by sight. That we would trust that the work that you're doing in us by the power of your spirit, both in repentance and in righteousness, would be beautiful. That we would confess, yes, who we are, but more so who you are. I thank you that you're doing that in us as a people, Lord. I pray that even today as we spend time eating together and barbecuing, Lord, that there would be opportunities Opportunities for us to remember and believe the gospel. Opportunities for us to share that with each other and with others. So that you would, your name would be made famous. That your name would be lifted high. God, we thank you that there's coming a day when you will come and you will judge. And in that judgment, you will, you will judge evil and it will be no more. You will judge sin and it will be no more. There will be no more crying, no more brokenness. Lord, we long for that day. My hope is in you. We trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.